Hey, all you nature nerds, this is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. It is me, Megan. I'm sitting across from Jen. Me, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll be doing a story today. You'll be doing our story today. I'll be doing the science news. Yeah, this is a fun science news I found on IFL Science. This has been, you're kind of, you've been on a roll. I've, right. So when you're looking for a story, do you just go to IFL and you don't check anywhere else? Is this? No, no, no. I did Science Daily last time. I'm pretty sure. Oh, are you? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, sure, 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 okay, sure. okay got you. I'm, I'm positive. Following. But I do really prefer IFL science. They're fun. They are fun. Uh, this one is entitled, Will Murder in the Metaverse Be Outlawed? So this is a little more of like a technology science news. Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, do you know what the metaverse is, Jen? Yes. It's where we're all going to be living soon. Yes. We're not going to have real bodies anymore pretty soon. We're just going to be consciousness, consciousnesses floating in the metaverse. And I can't wait. All right. So if you're, quote, murdered in the metaverse, should it be considered a distressing crime that needs punishment under the law? So this is a big topic they were talking about. Um, There were some world leaders that met at the World Economic Forum this week. I guess it was last week. And there was a panel where... The United Arab Emirates Minister for Artificial Intelligence was asked how governments might respond to the advent of the metaverse. So mostly they were talking about policies, Mm -hmm. like how people are going to act online in the metaverse. And he said one aspect of this, he argued, is the example of, quote, terrorizing people in the metaverse. Al Olama argues the realism of the metaverse could mean extreme actions like harassment or murder in augmented reality could have a significant psychological impact on a person in physical reality. There are no clear answers on how to deal with this, but he believes it is a question that will need to be addressed in the near future. And I argue that it's something that should be addressed now because he compares it later to a text that you might send on WhatsApp. But I'm just saying cyberbullying is a huge thing. And even just a text, writing something about a person and saying that they're like, Listen, Melania Trump was really against bullying and cyberbullying. Just saying. But no. okay, so that's what they're talking about is more so how we behave online with people. Right. I thought it was already it's already been addressed. So, no, that's what I'm saying is that they're talking about like, oh, this is going to be a big problem in the metaverse because you're going to put on a pair of virtual reality goggles Uh and you're going to be able to interact with people in like a 3D kind of very realistic sense. We're, you know, I'm talking, we're talking about virtual reality experiences, right? And so they're saying, oh, that's different than texting. Texting, it might not, it might terrorize you, he says, it might terrorize you to a certain degree, but it will not create the memories that will have PTSD from it. It's going to be a thing, Jen. That's what I'm saying. Not my thing. <laughs> I don't even care. Yeah. I like real stuff. But I'm just saying, yeah, it will be a thing for our kids. Oh, it's going to be a thing. It already is a thing. I mean, I have friends who have kids who have uh, VR helm- like uh, goggles. They play games in virtual reality. No. Yes. I don't like it. Guaranteed your kids are going to ask you for that. And I'll be like, no, go outside and <laughs> roll around in the grass. You would hope so. Yeah. It's going to be a thing, though. It's, I mean, kind of we're already heading that way. But what I'm saying is that 
he's saying it's going to be so realistic in the metaverse that it's going to be more detrimental than what people experience online currently. Okay. And my thing is that like, eh, pretty sure they're both really awful. Maybe for sure experiencing that in like a mm-hmm. 3D way will be really awful. But I don't understand exactly why they're having this conversation right now. Like this is a conversation that should have been happening at the advent of the Internet. Because nerds need to have conversations. <laughs> <laughs> Not just nature nerds. So Chris Cox, who is the chief product officer at Meta, which is, I'm sorry, what Facebook is now named. It's called the company, I guess, that was Facebook is now called Meta. Mm. Uh, was also speaking on this same panel and he highlighted how the metaverse will likely be a diverse place with multiple different platforms all operating with their own rules norms and cultures while cox agrees on the need for some internationally agreed standards he suggested that different platforms will also need to have some responsibility to set standards for themselves so i think he's talking about like moderators like having people who are kind of there to make sure people other people don't treat others horribly this just kind of reminds me of Wally again, where people are just going to be going around with virtual head things on, floating around in little cars because they can't even move anymore. Right. And the earth will be destroyed because climate change and nobody did anything because they're too busy worrying about meta stuff. That's I mean, all. it's possible. I, I just, I don't know how to feel about this, Megan. I'm worried about whether I should wear overalls or not. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jen, not the metaverse in the metaverse. You'll be able to wear whatever color of overalls you want to wear. But I don't I don't want to wear them in the metaverse. I want to wear them in real life. You want to feel them on your skin. That's right. I want to smell the things and touch the things. I don't want to. But I guess, you know, whatever. If that's what's happening. I'm just old. Yeah. This is how at some point people felt about television. Probably. For sure. (laughs) For sure. Electricity uh, or. Yeah. Mm hmm. It's weird because I'm kind of okay with the idea of virtual reality. It seems interesting to me, but I have once played a game in virtual reality, like wearing the goggles. Mm -hmm. And it is the trippiest feeling because you do really feel like you're in a completely different place because everything around you, you know, your peripheral vision, everything Mm -hmm. is inside that world or whatever. And I was playing this kind of funny game where you just like, I think you throw worms at something or there was like a sea monster. It was like very cartoony and co- not realistic in at any sense. And and I was like super into it. I was like, wow, this is crazy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm in this world. So I don't know. I think this could be something that we need to think about in the future. We should be thinking about now in terms of like regulation. There should be a law. I, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the Internet should be like super regulated, but I do think there should be laws to protect people from being bullied or, or hurt online. For Just sure. like how you shouldn't be uh, stalked or murdered or, you know, assaulted. Or all the things. All the things. Yeah. 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 So that is my science news. I know it's just like a little snippet, but... I thought it was interesting. It is interesting. A good thing to talk about. A different a different kind of science news. Yeah. Anyway. It's, it's techie. So I am excited to hear what you are going to talk about today. I have absolutely no idea, as per usual. Yes, I'm so secretive, unless you're like looking at my screen before I'm we not. get started. <laughs> like it's too low today. reflection <laughs> of my glasses. Um, so, Megan. Jen. This past March, I saw an article, which I thought was pretty wild and uh sap and so oh. it kind of got me thinking oh. about this okay okay so in tennessee at the shirley farms petting zoo two men were attacked and killed 
by a camel. What? This happened on March 10th in Obion County. It's where the Shirley Farms is located. Bobby Matteni was 42 and Tommy Gunn, 67. Either they worked at or volunteered at this petting zoo. Mm -hmm. And a camel had gotten loose. They were trying to corral or, you know, get the camel back into its... I don't know if they have a pen. It looks like a barn kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. The camel attacked when they were trying to get it back and ended up trampling and biting them until they were dead. What? Mm -hmm. Biting? Biting. So the camel, authorities said the camel probably, they think, felt cornered when it attacked Mm -hmm. and then charged at police who were trying to move one of the victims. Well, it didn't charge at police. It charged at the police vehicle. And then maybe it looked like it was going to charge at the police. So they ended up killing the camel, mm. which I never could. In any of the articles, I couldn't figure out. So if somebody else heard this story and you know, I couldn't tell or find if it was a male or a female. It's all the articles kind of said the same thing, which was that typically camels are docile and gentle, but they can be dangerous, especially if a male is in that rut oh, yeah. in the breeding season. They can become aggressive and can attack humans or other animals while they're in rut due to hormonal changes. Hmm. So Shirley Farms was cited with a critical U.S. Department of Agriculture violation for this incident. They said the fencing of the enclosure used to house the one male camel was not constructed. So here it says one male, but there were a couple. Um, so I, I don't know. Maybe it was a male. The Okay, the fencing of the enclosure used to house the one male camel was not constructed and maintained in a matter appropriate to housing a male camel in rut. That was a USDA inspector report. I guess the reason it's confusing is because there was another article where they're like, this French camel expert (laughs) said that if it's a female, there's no reason why they should attack. And maybe that's what confused me. In total, this Shirley Farms has had 70 violations in the past seven years wow mm-hmm. that's like 10 a year in addition to their unsafe camel enclosure one of them was in 2014 and then in 2018 they were cited for allowing the public to pet and feed the camel and other animals without an attendant present oh. there were times that they went and the animals were out with people and only the cashier who had no experience and wasn't supposed to be <laughs> the one dealing with that <laughs> she's like i'm just a cashier like that was the only person present in 2019 an inspector criticized shirley farns for not providing adequate drinking water to its camels and zebras They wrote, the only access to drinking water for the camels and zebra was a very small, shallow, muddy creek running through their enclosure, and there was no access to any water troughs or other potable water source. Wow. And that's really bad. Like, they need to have water. Yeah. Any animal, they need to have water, not a muddy stream. Yeah. This is not coming from me. I'm not throwing anything at, at the... This is from USDA reports. Sure. They also wrote in a more recent violation that the outdoor housing facility must be structurally sound and maintained in good repair to protect the animals from injury and to contain the animals. I also found a statement from PETA Foundation um, from the Associate Director of Captive Animal Law Enforcement, Debbie Metzler, which I think we talked about her. Her name came up in the chimpanzee episode. I was going to say her name sounds really familiar. Yep, Yep. She says, and this is a quote. Shirley Farms has a history of failing to have employees supervise interactions with animals, among many other citations for violating federal law. So this 
incident is tragic yet unsurprising. Injuries abound when animals are exploited for entertainment and PETA urges everyone to avoid sleazy roadside attractions as if lives depend on it because they do. Wow, Deborah, sleazy. Mm. Those are her words. I love it. So, Megan, Mm -hmm. there have been other attacks. Camel attacks? Camel attacks. Not just getting spit on? Yeah. Some camels spit. They do. Ooh. And they even like, it's there's a little vomit in there too, I've learned. Oh no. We'll talk about it. In February of 2015, a camel escaped from somewhere near Palmdale, California, and started attacking this poor 72-year-old man, no. Steve Brefka. There's a quote where he said, he was stomping me and biting me and getting on his knees on top of my chest, which is something they do when they're in rut. Oh, And poor Steve had to crawl under a car to get away from this wild, wild animal, (laughs) wild attack animal. Yeah. So he got under the car. He was injured, but okay. Mm -hmm. So the neighbors had managed, they got the camel and took it back to the property. But while all the like police and fire, everybody was, because everybody's like, oh my God, there's a wild camel attacking this poor guy. So they're all there. Somebody was able to get it, put it back. And it got free again. It was like, I'm free. It's like running around. Oh, no. So they had to use their patrol cars and fire engines to block. And then it ran about a quarter mile from the property where it's supposed to be. The camel then approached the owner of an adjacent property who was standing on the other side of this fence. It was this lady. And she was able to calm it down. Maybe she brought it some casserole. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she let it back onto um, this horse corral which was on her property yeah she's like it's fine i just gave him some casserole he's cool yeah broccoli and cheese broccoli cheese casserole it's his favorite tuna casserole (laughs) i don't know so this was of course a male and instead of killing it they took it to the lost the la county department of animal care and control and the department's uh, chief deputy, this was at the time, said he was being held and examined to make sure he was okay. And they said, he looks good. He's moving around. It's just we want to see, you know, make sure he's going to be okay. I guess they ended up taking back the person who was the owner did not have a permit to have the camel. Ooh, you in trouble. I'm just glad they didn't shoot it. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I can understand, you know, sheriffs or, you know, police Mm -hmm. firemen if you're being like attacked by an animal i understand doing that but you know if at all possible it'd be better not to yes i i kind of feel bad for the camel because they just want to do it they just they're just just so horny (laughs) they have the energy it's in them. they're aggressively horny yeah and it just it's not their fault and whatever looks good i think is what's happening (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Uh, unless these people looked like other camels i'm just glad that that guy was okay yeah but the other ones are not not so good january 2015 there were two people killed at the camel kisses farm no yeah that's an awful name in uh wichita falls texas mark Meir, who was 53 got into the pen with three camels it was one male and two females and he went in because their water trough was frozen so this was in, yeah, January. The other one was in February 2015. A okay, little out of order. But so we're looking seasonally. I was just noticing this, a trend here. The water was frozen because it's January. And he mm-hmm. had gone in to try to, you know, break the ice and maybe give them fresh water. And the male camel was in breadth and became very aggressive. It charged at him. He tried to get out of the pen, but couldn't. And then the owner of this place her name is peggy mcnair or was peggy mcnair 
she was 72 years old and she tried to close the gate to like, cause he was trying to get out and she was going to like help him out and then close the gate. Yeah. The male camel like charged at both of them and trampled them to death. No. Yeah. It's really sad. And when the sheriff's department got there, all three camels were acting aggressive. The relatives of the owner told them it's okay to kill the male. Oh, okay. So they did. Yeah. So that's really sad. And there was some more to that article where they had interviewed her a few years before. And she says, we're really careful when they go into rut. We know they're aggressive and they try to take more precautions. And Mm -hmm. I mean, she loved camels. Well, is that the farm named Camel Kisses? Uh Yeah. It's sad. So this one happened in March of 2016, but this was in India. There was an Indian man. He apparently had left his camel in the heat all day. Oh, no. And when he went out to untie his camel, it attacked him and chewed off his head. Shut up, Jen. (laughs) Chewed. Just chewed off his head. That's not real. It lifted it. This is a quote. The animal lifted him by the neck and threw him on the ground, chewed the body and severed the head, according to a bystander. What? I never am going to. You know, people have pictures of themselves like on camels for like (laughs) a vacation or never. Yeah. That's awful. So, well, I mean, we're going to talk more about, but also don't leave your camel in the yeah. in the heat all day. That's a mistreatment for That's sure. That's mistreatment. They say it took about 25 villagers like struggling with this animal for six hours to get control of it. And according to some of the villagers, um, this camel had attacked that man before. Maybe he was a bad owner. Yeah. That's is what this I'm a, saying. Is this like an elephant situation? It can be. kind of reminds me of when we talked about elephants and how they really remember some stuff. Yeah. Like when people mistreat them. Well, I think, yeah, I think that that, and that was one of the things that the lady that had the Peggy McNair, Mm -hmm. she was like, you know, camels get a bad rap, but they're just how they're treated. You know, if you treat them well, then they're fine. And I think it was just a bad situation. For them. Yeah. Yeah. They just, it it just happened. And it can happen. Bad time. Yeah. Yes. In January... So according to the Associated Press, Richard Molesky of Chicago, who was the American owner of a wildlife park in Mexico, he was also fatally attacked uh, at this resort in Tulum. They say that he had like a, a, a an attraction, I guess, or this wildlife park, and he had a camel. And they said the camel was going so crazy that the rescuers had to use a rope to tie it to a truck to move the camel like they had to pull the camel off the guy with a truck wow because he would not stop pummeling this poor guy jeez it's a a quote says the camel kicked and bit him practically to death and when he was almost dead he the camel sat on him between the blows and the weight of the camel on top of him he was asphyxiated oh no so they say it's unclear while this why this happened the guy was 60 years old and they said there could have been a number of reasons for the assault, including one that was kind of odd. They think there's several different theories. And this is another quote. One version is that he would always give him Coca-Cola to drink like the camel. Why do people? OK, yes. Mm-hmm. And apparently that day he didn't give him a Coca-Cola. But there's a lot of versions similar to that. So it's like he's going through caffeine withdrawal. See, this is why I don't drink Coke. 
Well, no, I'm just saying if I don't get caffeine for the day, <laughs> I, I can kind of identify. This is awful what happened to this yeah. man. But also, why is he feeding? Also, this reminds me of like a moose situation. But I know yes. moose, moose are it's different because camels are mostly domesticated, which we'll talk about. Sure, sure. But still. They maybe expect it. It's like, hey, if you're going to give me a Coke every day, you're going to give me a freaking Coke every day. Right, right. So the place, I guess the name of the place was called Tulum Monkey Jungle. There's also 13 spider monkeys, six deer, two emus, two llamas, and a wild boar. Two emus? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. We just talked about that. They were all seized by authorities pending investigation. And this was, what year did I say? 2017. So I'm sure they probably got moved on if the owner died. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, those are some of my, some stories. I'm going to, I'm going to now talk about camels. I was one. I was hoping. Yes, to hear more because about camels. I wanna, you know, know this, this is all the bad news. But yeah. you know, that's the point of our podcast, right? We bring the bad news. We we bring all the things that could happen or have true. happened, true, so true, we true, can true. all learn from it, right? Yeah, let's learn. But now we need to learn about camels because they're pretty stinking awesome. Education. When you think of camels, Megan, where do you think that they come from? Well, Jen, I always imagine that camels live in the desert. Exactly. Specifically the Middle East. I feel like that's a big deal because especially what was it in Fantasia? They had the camels that had like um, like little eye covery things, like <laughs> yeah. kind of like hijabs almost. But mm-hmm. like, yeah, very yeah. Middle Eastern. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's where you usually think of it. But let's talk about their evolution a little bit let's because they didn't originally come from there and they didn't always have humps. I mean, guess what? what? When they first started out on this planet. They were about the size of a beagle. What? Yep. That's blowing my mind. But they had longer legs and a longer neck, but no hump or anything. They first appeared in the subtropical forest in North America. Hold up. Yeah. Stop lying. From there, they, and this was like 46 million years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So they lived, that was a long time ago. Well, hold on, I'll get there. So from there, they traveled a long ways obviously and as they traveled they got bigger their feet changed they kind of split into two distinct evolutionary lines some migrated over the isthmus of panama okay yeah to south america and evolved into modern day llamas and alpacas cute llamas yeah i love those guys and then others used a land bridge across the Bering Strait to cross to Asia and eventually Africa. And along the way, they evolved into the camels we see today. Oh. So from 46 million to 6 million years ago, camels originated and only lived in North America. And wow. they were called Protilopus. <laughs> <laughs> Protilopus. How Protilopus. about that? That sounds great. Protilopus. Good science, Megan. You sound, it sounds wonderful. I science the hell out of that word. At that six million years time frame, that's when they split. Okay. And then camels. And then at three million years is when the llamas, it was kind of like that. Okay. So a lot of millions. So many millions. It's really a drop in the bucket when you think about the time of the universe. But it's weird to think about what things were 50 million years ago. Right. A camel the size of like a small dog. But, But no humps, but no humps. (laughs) <laughs> my humps <laughs> no lovely lady lumps oh it's gonna be hard it's gonna be a tough one so there are two types of camels megan 
There's the dromedary camels. They have one hump. And there's the Bactrian camels that have two humps. And one way I heard some people describing it was if you think of the dromedary, like a D, like a big D, oh, has one, yeah. mm-hmm. one hump or lady lump. <laughs> and if it's a Bactrian, it's a B with like two. Lovely lady lumps. Yes. I love it. Their humps. Their humps, not my humps. Your humps? I don't know because I feel like I feel a connection with this hump consists of stored fat. I mean, I feel like that's my my humps as well. Or I'm there. Stored fat in which they can metabolize when food and water is scarce, right? Yeah. So in addition to their humps, camels have other ways to adapt to their environment. They have this um because think about it. I mean, they are in the deserts, you know, lots of sandstorms. So they have a clear third eyelid that protects their eyes from all the blowing sand. They can also shut their nostrils to close them to keep the sand out. So they have all these ways. That's Mm -hmm. cool. That's pretty cool. So humans have used camels as for transportation for thousands of years. They can carry up to 600 pounds. Dang. Yeah. On their backs, according to National Geographic. It's given them the nickname, the ships of the desert. Oh. Domestic camels are often a main source of meat, milk, and even leather or wool for a lot of people. I was going to ask if people ate camel. Yeah. And I guess it's kind of a thing in Australia. There are some religions that they don't. Mm. It's not that they couldn't, but they don't. They don't eat it. There are some that, um, like in Somalia, they really love certain people. Like they have a lot of camels mm-hmm. and they would never eat them unless they're like dying oh so it's more of a like a like yeah. a dog situation oh. it, for let's say americans well but we wouldn't eat our dogs if you were starving sure sure, sure sure are we talking about the antarctic expedition Listen, i'm just trying to back you into a corner <laughs> <laughs> are you trying to see if i'd eat my dog <laughs> listen pika wouldn't i wouldn't eat pika there's yeah. not enough on there but i mean floki would be pretty tasty He's a big dog. <laughs> Just Ew. Horrified. Um, horrified. Yeah. We're kidding. Don't, nobody's eating their dogs over here. But you know what? If you're in a country um, where it's acceptable and that's what you do and you need food, there's no judgment here. Yeah. We've been to those places and we love those people. So whatever. So most camels are way huge. Like we, we, we know this, right? Massive. So the Bactrian camel, the one with the two humps, mm-hmm. grows uh, to a shoulder height of six feet or 1.8 meters and a body length of 10 feet. Dang. And they normally weigh around 1,300 to over 2,000 pounds when they're fully grown. The dromedary camels are like slightly smaller. Okay. The one humpers, the one lumpies. So their diet is whatever they find in the desert, pretty much. They're not picky about it. They have these um, thick lips that they can eat stuff that other animals wouldn't be able to, like thorny plants. Hmm. Um, they also, they're herbivores, so you won't ever see them eating meat, only okay. plants. They do drink a lot of water, and it's very important, and this is why that kind of bothered me when I read that. About the guy left him out in the, yeah. Oh, with that the no water. and the no water. Yes. They can drink 30 gallons or 113 liters of water in just like 10 minutes. Hydration yeah. is really important, Jen. It's really important. I feel like that's what all doctors want us to do. I wish I could do that. Can you? Oh, that didn't know because then you would get that. You would die. You yeah. would die. You would get that thing I was hypo, talking about. Hypo something or other. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, their bodies rehydrate faster than any other mammal. When there is very little food and water, the camel's hump fat releases water. So that's why people think the humps are full of water. Yes, but they're not. It's fat. It always bothered me when you would see cartoons of camels and like they would be walking and their humps would be swaying back and forth, sometimes in opposite directions of each other. If they Uh did like a two hump camel, Uh that always creeped me out a lot because I was like, oh, that's (laughs) that's that's a squishy lump. That is like a lady lump. Yeah. Um, Well, according to the University of Singapore, 9.3 grams of fat releases 1.13 grams of water. Is that like for everybody in the world? That's for camels. Oh, just for camels. I mean, I wish that were. Yeah, I don't know. It just that I think it's just for camels. Hmm. But, you know, we could always be like, look, I have this roll of fat because if I ever get dehydrated, (laughs) I'm good to go. It could be bad. You need that (laughs) extra excess of. Yeah, this is important. It's part of my emergency preparedness kit. (laughs) Your muffin top. Exactly. I need this. So the two different kinds of camels are found in different parts of the world. The dromedary camel, also was known as the Arabian camel, can be found in North Africa and the Middle East. So that's mm-hmm. that one, the one humper. And then um, the Bactrian camel is mostly found in Central Asia. But no matter which type, they're usually found in desert areas or prairie type areas, mm. like dry a lot of people think that camels only live in hot climates, but they can also do well in lower, like down to like 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm. Because if you think about it, the desert gets really, really cold at night. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So they have a range. And some of them, if you look at the Bactrian camels, they're really floofy. They have a lot of hair on them. They're kind mm. of adorable and cute. Do you know what a group of camels is called, Megan? Yes, I love this. Um... <laughs> it's our favorite part. It is. The show. Collective nouns are the friggin' best. I am going to guess, uh, I don't know, the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> <laughs> it should be Honestly, at this point. Yeah. The humps. The humps. Fergies. What's it? Fergies. It's a group of Fergies. <laughs> it's a group of Fergies. Uh, no, I don't know. Let's let's hear it. It's a caravan. Oh, oh I feel like I should have known that. I know, right? Is this like a caravan going across the desert? So yeah. they're, they're, a lot of times they just refer to them as a herd. But right, right. I mean, but caravan is just way cooler. So a caravan is led by a dominant male. Oh. Uh, there are other males that form their own caravans or herds. And they're called bachelor herds. They're actually very social and they greet each other by blowing in each other's faces. Breeding occurs during the winter. Oh. Can we stop and think about those attack stories yeah. real quick? See, I'm pulling it around full circle right now. You see yeah, how I did I that? I see it. I you see follow? it. follow? The rutting. The rutting. I mean, I don't know if it's... So it depends on if you're which hemisphere you're in. Mm-hmm. But it wouldn't matter if that's where they live their whole lives. In the right. cold winter months, it was always in February or January when yeah. those stories happen. That's when they get... Getting it on. They, that's when they get horny. A female camel gives birth to young once every two years. Okay? Does they she have only to? have one. Yes, she has to have one. There's legislation <laughs> saying she must bear a camel. A baby camel every, every two, two years. years. Got it. Or you go to camel jail, especially if you live in Texas or Oklahoma. <laughs> anyway, after gestation, which lasts 12 to 14 months, mother camel will then go off to find a private spot to deliver her young baby camel or possibly twins. Oh. Can happen. Baby camels are called calves. 
Makes mm-hmm. sense. Heard Makes that sense. one. Heard that one a few times. The newborn calf is able to walk within 30 minutes. It's like I forget what that was called. We talked about with horses. There's a specific name for when they can like just take off. Yeah. Right after and, birth. But. And giraffes can do it like right away, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, though they won't rejoin the herd until a couple of weeks later, mm-hmm. even though baby can walk. She's like, It's been twenty seven minutes. Are you gonna <laughs> start going walking? On? We need yes. to go over here. They become fully mature when they're seven years old and they can live around 17 years in the wild. Lots more if they're taken care of well in captivity. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And given some freaking water. For reals. And if they manage not to trample anybody and get shot. If that's another. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So now I'm going to talk about their um, classification as far as I'm going to I'm going to pronounce some scientific names here so everybody just hold on to your butts while i do this <laughs> dromedary camels are camelus dromedarius i love it dromedarius <laughs> i feel like there's a song there somewhere Definitely. and the domestic bactrian camel is called camelus bactrianus wow that was that was great jen i was really proud that you know well i was just really happy that they kept it real easy for me simple and they were named in 1758 by none like, other than Linnaeus. Linnaeus, what? the Swedish zoologist. Uh, and then, and he only knew of the domestic ones, right? Mm-hmm. So the there's also the wild Bactrian camels, and they are Camillus ferris. Makes sense. Mm-hmm, Reminds me of horses. Wild. They were discovered in 1878 by Nikolai Przewalski. Can you say it? Yeah, like the Przewalski's horse. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Which we talked about. We did. He was a Russian geographer and he was exploring in Mongolia and Tibet. And that's when he was like, oh, look, a camel. It's wild. And he <laughs> gave it the name. For a long time, the wild Bactrian, they thought it was a subspecies of the domestic Bactrian. However, oh. now that we have some a DNA analysis going on, they confirmed that the wild or feral Bactrian was actually a completely different species. Hmm. Uh, the main difference between the two species is that the wild Bactrian has three more chromosome pairs than the domestic. Oh. So totally different. I mean, that's cool. Genetically speaking. Yes. yes. They're different. So this really cool wild Bactrian camel is considered critically endangered. Oh, no. By the IUCN and has a population that is decreasing. They think that right now there's around a thousand camels out there it's according to some people it's the eighth most endangered large mammal on the planet oh no it's a very sad but for the the domestic ones there's around they say 22 million worldwide the majority of the dromedaries are and that's more than 15 million Uh, most of those are in somalia about 7 million and Sudan, about 4 million. Ethiopia and Kenya also have pretty high numbers. Um, and there's about 700,000 feral ones in Australia that are becoming an issue because oh. Australia. Oh, no. So like, what the? What are we going to do with these camels? What? Exactly. I feel like Australia is always like, damn it. Now we got all these cats. We got rabbits. We got like the dingoes. We got the rats. I remember rats. you telling the story about the rats. Just so much stuff. Yeah. Anyway. Threats to the survival of the wild Bactrian camel is in in Mongolia, 25 to 30 Bactrian camels are killed annually when they migrate across this international border with China. And a lot of times it's like sport hunting. 
Oh, like purposefully killed. They're killing them to eat them, right? Oh. It says that in China, there's this new Arjun Sean Lupner Nature Sanctuary. And it says that up to 20 wild Bactrian camels are killed annually by miners and hunters for subsistence. So are they, they're going into this nature reserve and being like, well, this is easy. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah. we're just going to take them from here. As far as non-human predators, wolves are the only, like, the main predator out there. Mm. Um, also, drought is causing a lot of problems. That makes sense. Climate change. Let's just not say drought. We'll just say climate change. I believe you said it in our last episode. Yes. Don't say drought. Yeah. Let's not say like storms or drought. It's climate change. Um, for 45 years, there's this area around Gashun Gobi, which um, is in China, which was a nuclear test site. And that was no good for the camels or any wildlife around there. Yeah. They can also, there's also because of this illegal mining, we talked about mining. And all of its things, that's a problem for any, you know, any wildlife. And habitat is also used for gas pipelines. So they're taking away habitat. Mm. The domestic Bactrian camels and goats have also been introduced to these areas. So for gra grazing and water. So there's breeding. So you could get hybridization. So we're going to, they're going to lose like the natural stock, I guess. I was going to ask you if they could mate. Yes. Those two. Yeah. So, and also these other like goats and whatever are taking away these resources. Also, it says high infant mortality due to harsh conditions like drought and whatnot. Yeah. There have been a few actions initiated by the governments of China and Mongolia to conserve these animals, such as like eco-based management programs. There's a couple of programs in the Great Gobi Reserve and in Mongolia that were set up. And that's that Lopner... <laughs> I don't know, Lopner Wild Camel National Nature Reserve. And that was established in 2000. There's also some other organizations, and I'll talk about this more, that have started a captive breeding programs. Mm -hmm. There are 15 animals in captivity, and they're, they're starting to mate and make new babies. So I'll bring that up in a little bit. Nice. It's really weird because in some areas where there's not a lot of fresh water, they found that these uh, camels can actually drink salt water. Oh, they don't know how they're tolerating the salt or how they're like filtering it, filtering it. Yeah. Secreting the salt. They haven't been able to get to the bottom of that, but they've somehow like managed to figure out how to drink salt water and be OK, which is just wild. So some other fun facts is they can run 25 miles per hour. Mm, that's pretty fast. That is really fast, especially if they're rutting. Mm. <laughs> they're rutting after your ruts. They're like, <laughs> you got some nice lady lumps. <laughs> Do it. Yeah, don't try, cannot, cannot outrun them. Apparently, if their owner is in a hurry, they say they can speed, like, get them to go, like, 40 miles per hour, which is insanely fast. That's fast. I just can't imagine riding a huge camel at 40 miles an hour. I don't want to. Another cool adaptation is they have oval-shaped red blood cells that help them continue blood flow during times when they don't have water, a lot mm. of water. So when they're getting dehydrated, that's kind of cool. That is cool. And here's the spitting part. They do spit on people and they say, in fact, the animals are throwing up the contents of their stomach along with the spit. It's a defense tactic when the animals feel threatened. Come on. They just like regurgitate and spit it on you. It reminds me of somebody we knew. <laughs> oh. Oh. I mean, they didn't spit it. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it makes me think of sea cucumbers. Oh, yeah. When you stress out sea cucumbers and they throw up a piece of their... Their organs, their uh, poor sea cucumbers. Stuff, yeah. 
So they also make a variety of noises, moans, and groans. And it's likened to the sound of Chewbacca in a Star Wars movie. Would you like to hear it, Megan? Yes. I was going to ask you, are you going to play it? Yes. Are you ready, Megan? I'm ready. (laughs) I take it back. I'm not ready. (laughs) That That one's not super. That's a little Chewbacca right there. I think it helps if you see it. It's really kind of cute. I like he has like a little bowl cut. He does. He has some. He has some really nice bangs. Oh, I'm a little jelly of the bangs. That but... was kind of funny. That can't be real. <laughs> There's other ones that I should find them, but you can just go listen yourself. They're very much like a Chewbacca. Let's talk about camels with humans. So when humans first domesticated camels, is disputed. There you go. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. Done. <laughs> no, the first domesticated dromedaries, they think it was in Southern Arabia around 3000 BCE or as late as 1000 BCE. And the Bactrian camels in Central Asia was around 2500 BCE. So these desert tribes and Mongolian nomads use camel hair for tents and stuff. And so, I mean, through like archaeologists have found bones and bits and pieces with camels in it. And that's how they know that they came up with that right and they've also been used during war times Mm. Mm -hmm. so like horses they've been used in warfare for centuries because they can carry these heavy loads and go for days without water and they have a really good war cry and listen to that it's like we're coming (laughs) (laughs) it's like a siren yeah that's what it made me think of yeah so they were used during the desert campaigns in the first world war the first recorded use of camel in battle occurred more than two and a half thousand years ago when the Persian emperor Cyrus the Great used them in his victory over the Lydians in the battle of, I don't know what these battles are, in yeah. 547 BC, just a long ass time ago. Jen, why do you not know what these battles are? He these was like, just... I'm galloping 40 miles per hour in the great battle of Thimbra. In 1916, mm-hmm. uh, they formed the Imperial Camel Corps which included two New Zealand companies, which played a role in the Sinai and Palestine campaign. Okay. Between 400 and 450 New Zealanders fought in this Camel Corps, and 41 of them died before they were just this New Zealand company and this thing was disbanded in 1918. Mm. So the soldiers of this Imperial Camel Corps were known as Cameliers. Such a cool name. Pretty sweet. I mean, I'd like to be a Camelier. For sure. Get like a badge. A special hat, possibly. I feel like they could fly, too. It seems to (laughs) imply that there is flight. That's right. So they would ride the camels to the scene of the battle or fight, but then they would get off and fight on foot. But they would complain that the camels were very stubborn and would occasionally stampede and attack some people, which I'm saying not such a bad thing in war. Not a bad thing. Yeah. That's when you want to get your camel a little excited. (laughs) Be like, how are you feeling? Are you feeling ready? Let's yeah. do it. Like, here's a little camel porn for you. <laughs> just to get them, you know, yeah. just to get them in the mood. Right. And then be like, that guy. For the stampeding. Yeah, stampede that one and that one. Anyway, but all in all, they really cared about their camels. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I imagine they're, they are pretty cute when you look at them. And, I mean, who wouldn't love that sound? That's all I'm saying. 
So although they weren't used for fighting, in 1915, there was this British Army unit that was made up of locally recruited Egyptian camel handlers, which I don't know why they weren't cameliers. I'm just saying. Mm, yeah. And sadly, I think these handlers weren't treated as well. Mm-hmm. They were subject to military discipline, it says, and commanded by British officers. Mm. Anyway, probably, you know, a little bit of a weird situation, a weird dynamic out there. Right. Um, the initial force of this group was 11,000 cameliers and 20,000 camels split into 10 companies. And more were added later. The camel transport companies were the final link of the supply chain that moved supplies from ships to railways to depots and deliver delivered to troops that were in the field. They played a vital role in the ultimately successful British campaigns against the Ottoman Turks in both Sinai and Palestine. Oh, wow. So this was like a big deal in World War One. When the Imperial Camel Corps Brigade was disbanded, all the surplus camels that were originally going to be handed over to the Camel Transport Corps, because there were two different things. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. it's confusing, but there was the Imperial Camel Corps and then the Camel Transport. So some were used to get to the battle and some were used just for transporting things. But Colonel T.E. Lawrence, oh, better known as Lawrence of Arabia. Exactly. He convinced the commander of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force that they would be put to better use by the Arab army. Hmm. According to this trooper, Frank Reed, who was with the Australian company, 3rd Battalion, Imperial Camel Corps, this is a quote, he said, we were sorry for the camels, although we often cursed them when they were taken away from us, we found that we had become quite attached to our ugly, ungainly mounts. Oh my God. The Arabs would not treat them as kindly as we had done, and we reckoned they would they were entitled to a long spell in a country that suited them better than the rough and slippery mountain tracks of Palestine. Oh, wow. So they kind of felt sorry for him. They were like, sorry, old friend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and side note, T.E. Lawrence is in our last story. Well, which is in episode 68. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to talk about him just real quick. I was actually, when we had that, talked about that episode, I was actually thinking to do a whole episode on Lawrence of Arabia because he's a really interesting yeah. guy. Yeah. But I was just like, eh, I don't know. It's just like war, 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 war. <laughs> I just, it was Camels, war, war, war. Just a lot of war. Well, and then of... T.E. Lawrence and Percy Fawcett hung out together at some point. That's pretty, yeah, that's cool. Or at least he wanted to go on an expedition with Percy Fawcett. And Percy Fawcett was like, nah, I'm good. He's like, I'm good. He was born in August of August 15th, actually, 1888. Let me see if I can say this. I'm excited. Tremadoc Carnarvonshire in Wales. So I could be related to him, according to my uh, DNA Mm -hmm. uh, testing. A little bit of Welsh. A little bit of Welsh in there. He did a lot of stuff. He was a a British scholar. He was in the military. He did some pretty cool stuff. I'll talk about it a little bit. And he also wrote a book. He studied at Oxford submitting his thesis on crusader castles. And apparently he like did like this really long journey by himself and looked at all these different castles by bike or something. I mean, it was like, he was, he was a go-getter. He learned Arabic uh, on an archeological expedition from 1911 through 14. After that, he was going to be staying out and doing, continuing to do this expedition, but world war one happened Mm -hmm. 1914. They were like, wow, you already speak Arabic. We need you to go over here. That's pretty sweet. Helpful. Yeah, super helpful. He helped with the Arab rebellion against the Ottoman Empire. 
because the Ottoman Empire is apparently the bad guys during that one. Mm. They were trying to undermine Germany's East, you know, their ally, right? So he led Arab forces in these guerrilla campaigns behind the lines, tying up many Ottoman troops. And when they say that, so what he did, it was really smart. So he would not like it's so a lot of times we'll be like, we're going to blow up this bridge, right? Mm -hmm. He wouldn't blow up the bridge. He would make the bridge so unstable that they couldn't use it, but they had to break it down before they could rebuild it. So it would take them twice as long to fix it and get across. That's kind of genius. It was super genius. And that's what he did all over the place. So they say when you go there, you can still see remnants of things that were only partially destroyed mm -hmm. because he wanted them to spend all their time and resources on trying to fix these things that were kind of way more difficult than if you had just blown up the whole thing. And like clean slated. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. I wonder if he did any that were like, he made them purposefully look kind of like you could go across them, but they were really <laughs> rickety. And you have like someone getting in the middle. They're like, okay, Steve, you go first. This is, that's kind of like I'm watching Vikings Valhalla, which I know everybody that watches that has seen it because it's old, but it takes me a while to watch stuff. But <laughs> they kind of do something like that. They bring mm -hmm. down the London Bridge. Oh. The Vikings do. Just small, taking out little bricks. They were just, they they chipped away at it and then they tied ropes to those parts where they chipped it away. And mm -hmm. then the Viking dudes out on their Viking boats were like, <gasps> and then they like pulled it and it broke it down. And then one guy got a hernia. It's fine. A lot of guys got hernias, <laughs> I bet. I just think of these Vikings. I'm like, man, they were like hardcore. Something. Something. Okay, so in 1917, that's when his forces had their first major victory. They captured the port town of Al Aqaba. Does that sound right? Al I don't know why, but that totally makes me think of uh, Walt Disney's Arabian Nights. <laughs> yeah, because I, I feel like the town, the like city yeah. they were in, was like. Thank you. It's not just me. Well, anyway, probably same thing. Yeah, right. There was thing. a genie there. For sure, he found it. So he was captured that year by the Turks, but he escaped. And from some things I read, he was tortured so badly during this time that it affected him the rest of his life. And yeah. later in life, they were like, he is a very peculiar and strange person. I'm like, PTSD. <laughs> he needs uh, therapy and medication. Yeah, he, he went through a lot. They were victorious and all that. It was all great. He ended up retiring. Uh, they tried to make him a like knight him and make him a sir, and oh. he declined, which he is declined. very wow, strange. Right. Yeah, it's... he also changed his name a few times. So, and this is what I'm saying: he did some stuff that was interesting. He went under the name Ross, uh, and later the last name Shaw. He enlisted in the Royal Air Force briefly under this Royal Tank Corps under those names because maybe he didn't want people to know who he was, like Ross from Friends. Yeah. Like last name Ross, yeah, okay. not first name, but yeah. T.E. Um, Ross. Got it. It's weird, right? Ross of Arabia. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't quite have the same, same ring. Yeah, no. yeah. Um, he finished his autobiography called The Seven Pillars of Wisdom in 1929. And apparently he did some more traveling. But in May of 1935, he died in a motorcycle accident. He was like 46 or 47. Oh, no. I know. And he was only three months discharged from the military at that point because he continued to be in the military for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then he's like, OK, I'm going to go do some stuff. And they say that he was, you know, he was coming up. Maybe he was like on the downside of a hill. Mm -hmm. And when he came back up on the top, there were some people riding their bikes and he swerved to not hit them 
oh. and crashed his bike and he was in a coma like for a week and then he died. Wow. I know. So we all know the 1962 film Lawrence of Arabia. At least if you haven't seen it, you've heard of it. I've heard Peter of it. Peter O'Toole. Never seen it. Was nominated for an Academy Award. It's supposed to be one of the 10 best films of all time. Best yes. performances. Yes. So yes. I feel like we should watch it. We should. Right yeah. now. You guys ready? Let's do this. <laughs> We're going to start it. We'll just play it. I'll play it on my phone. Perfect. We'll just, we'll be like. No copyright infringement. Right. We'll be like, what is it? What's the theater 2000? Uh, oh, uh, MST 3000? Yes. We'll just. Mystery Science Theater. Mystery Science Theater. Thank you. We'll yeah. just like be those people in yeah. the background making comments. I love it. That could be a whole nother podcast for us. Definitely. Great. So they did, uh, they interviewed Peter O'Toole on NPR. I think Terry Gross talked to him. Terry this was Gross? in, it's in the 90s sometime. But he said, I love the desert. I really did. I was there for three months before filming started. And the idea was to learn to ride a camel. It was impossible. What you see is a European perched uneasily on top of this huge brute snorting and galloping. <laughs> I found after a while, my bottom was bleeding from bouncing up and down on the snorting great dragon. What? <laughs> I went to Beirut, not to gamble this time, but to buy sponge rubber. And it was, I remember, mucus membrane pink. And I arrived back to my Bedouin friend with this lump of thick, thick rubber, and I stuffed it shamelessly into my saddle. But after a while, they looked and they saw it was quite comfy, too. And they could bounce more easily on sponge rubber than you could on a wooden hump. So they began to ask me to buy more. So I was requisitioning tons of this damn stuff, yards of it. I think I introduced sponge rubber to an Arabian culture. They called me, in, in Arabic, the father of rubber. That's <laughs> pretty cool. I don't know why, but that just makes me feel like he was in a full rubber suit. Like that's, it's, that's uh, dirty. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. But Peter O'Toole, cool guy. I mean, I don't know him. Did, I didn't know him. Personally. Didn't know him personally, but he seems like pretty hilarious. Yeah. So here's a couple of cool things about camels. Google recruited a 10-year-old camel named Rafia to gather street view images. Isn't that cute? What? Like it's it had... It had like the little Yeah, there's a picture there. of it. This is on Nat Geo or it's a Nat Geo article. And it was images of the Liwa Oasis. It's a crescent-shaped region, 125 miles from Abu Dhabi. Google spokesperson Joyce Baz told United Arab Emirates newspaper, The National, that it was the first time the tech company had used an animal to gather ground-level images. The vast majority of pictures gathered by Google's global mapping project are taken with a camera fixed to the top of a car. And this is her quote, with every environment and every location, we try to customize the capture and how we do it for that part of the environment. She described the choice of the camel as the best, most authentic and least damaging way to capture the area and share it with Google users around the world. Is that cool? cool? I thought that was so cool. I was like, hell yeah, Google. So another couple of articles I read at, with uh, Nat Geo, I'm not going to go into them, but it's basically, there were two separate articles that were talking about, one was talking about India and this nomadic culture using camels and centuries old, um, that it's fading away. And oh. mostly because more people are moving to the city and they're just like, we're not going to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. But now they're starting to sell camel milk as like a really cool, like hipster thing. Okay. Let me just say real quick that I love milk. We've, uh -huh. we have uh established that on previous episodes that milk yes. is like a thing corn dogs a thing whatever <laughs> but i i am who i am i am as god <laughs> made me 
<laughs> I know that will that milk is weird. I know it. Okay, I'm aware. It's, it's a weird thing. Uh-huh. Though if someone were like, "You want to try this camel milk?" I would be like, "Hell no!" Listen, not in a million years. It's a thing, and so they're trying to sell it to keep this livelihood of camel herding alive in India, and it's working. I mean, Nat Geo wrote an article about it. So, so another a similar article, similar but different, was talking about this age-old Somali camel herding tradition. And the problem there is there's these Somali camel herders that they've been around forever. They're having a problem with drought. And they're mm-hmm. the ones that I was saying, like, they have a saying that if the camel is fine, our life is fine. Oh, And if it's not, then their life is not fine. And it's a really, really nice article. You should go read it. And basically the drought and also some storm action, so let's climate change, is starting to destroy their herds. Like it's getting too hard for them. They're like an indicator species. Yep. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about camels in Merca. Merca. And I'm also going to talk about the red ghost. Some folklore right here. All right, all right. This is good time. So, you know, I like to take it back to the 1850s. Why not? In every single episode, somehow <laughs> I get there. I get there every time. You just love it. I guess. I don't know. I'm just keeping us there again. So here we are back in 1848. There was the importation of camels for military purposes in Perfect. the Southwest. It was suggested by the War Department, Henry Wayne, who was a quartermaster major whatever that is. Very cool. And two years later, the Secretary of War and Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis, they went to the Senate and they were like, we need to bring camels for the army. And everyone's like, but they're like, no, 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 because we're moving west, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be more arid. Yeah. We need, uh, you know, something that can retain. Manifest destiny. (laughs) (laughs) So many things. So many things. They basically... Wanted to be able to get to areas and and they needed, they thought the camels would be cool to carry all the stuff. Right. But here's the thing. This is the real, real shitty part is that it was actually, there was people who were bringing camels from Africa. Like, we're just bringing these camels. But actually, guess what? what? They were trying to bring slaves to oh, the western no. part of the states and sneak them in because it was illegal at that point. Right. To bring, no. you know, people over to be slaves, like stealing of people and bringing them. Yeah. So they were like so, fixing their books to say camels, but camels, it was people. But they actually had people stored mm-hmm. underneath. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. So there's that real dark side of this story. And, you know, but they were like, no, 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 we're going to use these. They're better than horses or mules because they can go a long time, obviously, without water and they can do all this stuff. So even though there was that really dark side, which eventually those people all had terrible karmas and all bad things happened to them. They also suggested that the camels might be able to carry the mail Mm -hmm. and that fast camel passenger trains might be developed to run from uh, the Missouri River to the Pacific Coast. The senators at first were like, that's stupid, and they voted it down. But then later, after these California newspapers were like, this is a great idea, because I don't know, whoever just... Someone paid for an ad or an article. So finally, in uh, 1854, they passed a bill to appropriate $30,000 $30,000 for this camel experiment. And so this is kind of going back because remember they came in 1858. 72 camels arrived in the country in the early part of 1857 and started carrying supplies in the Southwest. They were like, these camels are rude. They spit vomit on you. <laughs> they scare the horses and they don't listen. They just wander off at night 
So the soldiers were like, F this. We hate, we hate camels. Camels suck. But they continued to use them in the until the Civil War broke out. And at that time, they were either sold at auction or just let loose in the desert. Just like, be free, camels. Yeah, they're like, bye. We don't like you guys. We like our horses. Mm. We're Americans. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They just didn't like him. But I'm like, that's rude. So for years afterwards, these wild camels, because they were just let loose, continued to be like seen roaming around the <laughs> desert, especially in Arizona. Just randomly. I just picture like very cartoonish, like a camel, like running and hiding behind like a tree or a bush. I don't know. And just like, yeah, yeah. Like, was that a, <clears throat> did I just see a, but like it's two humps or above the bush. <laughs> yeah. It's and... like, dee, 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 dee. and then they're like, <laughs> what was that? I guess there were some actual sightings, but there's also like some legends and tales that oh. came up. And it's kind of fun because there was a camel, like I said, known as the Red Ghost. In 1883, there was a woman found trampled to death and on her body and on a nearby bush were clumps of reddish fur. And there were large hoof prints that were found in the area. And everyone's like, Bigfoot. (laughs) It's either Bigfoot or a camel. We don't know. Not much longer after that incident with the poor lady, there were these two miners that were sleeping and this big animal, a beast, they say, came into their tent. And they didn't know what kind of animal it was. But again, big hoof prints, tufts of red hair. I'm like, do they just leave their hair everywhere? And also, wouldn't they sound? I mean, we just heard how they sounded. Yeah. So was it a camel or was it Chewbacca? So there were several more incidents that occurred. Um, The locals finally said, we think it's actually a camel. (laughs) We, We got that part figured out. And then they started reporting seeing the camel from time to time. And there was one rancher that said that it carried a rider and the rider appeared to be dead, but like stuck to the camel. Come on. And the next report came from a group of prospectors who saw the camel. And while watching them, they saw something fall off its back and the camel like ran off and the prospectors were like, what was that? And they went over and what had fallen off was a human skull. Yeah. At this point, they're like, that's the red ghost. <laughs> they named it and carrying its headless rider. I mean, this is great, right? The red ghost attacked again a few days later. This time they called it a demonic camel monster. <laughs> they said it was 30 feet tall and it knocked over two freight wagons. <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, but they found the strands of red hair. Now it's just someone messing around with people. (laughs) (laughs) So after this, of course, things got embellished like that story. One claimed it saw it eat a grizzly bear, like attack a grizzly bear and eat it. Lies. They don't eat meat. They're herbivores, people. Another said it um, that he chased the red ghost only to have it disappear before his eyes. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But they all agreed that it had this human skeleton attached to his back. So near Phoenix, um, this cowboy came upon the red ghost and it tossed a rope around its neck only to have it charge and run back. And it says right over the horse and the rider before galloping off into the dust. And he recognized the skeletal remains of a man on its back. So maybe it maybe someone did actually was like strapped in on the camel. I'm like, this is why he was so upset. Yeah. If he had like a dead guy strapped to him for no, who knows you. how long yeah. i mean seriously no, no about 10 years later there was this rancher he woke up one morning and he saw this particular camel grazing in his garden and he shot it and killed it mm-hmm. and later so they examined this camel 
And they, they really thought it was the red ghost because his back, they said, was badly scarred from rawhide strands that had been used to hold the body of a man. But now the human body was like, it wasn't there anymore. It just, yeah, it was just really gross. Because it had a saddle on it, and then you could see where, like, it had, yeah, rope burns, yeah. I guess. Oh. They kept trying to figure out who this mysterious dead rider on the camel had been for a while. And one tale alleges that the rider was a young soldier who was afraid of camels. And so, because they wanted him to learn, like, the other soldiers wanted him to learn how to ride this camel, they, they tied him to the camel. And then... They thought it would help him get over the fear and they hit the camel on the rump and it took off and never stopped. And they think that he basically just died strapped to the camel. Maybe he died. I don't know. Maybe had a heart attack out of fear or something like that. Something. That's what I would hope. I would hate that he would be just there starving away. I mean, it could run 40 miles an hour. Sure. So they tried to catch it. They couldn't catch it. Very sad. So although these abandoned camels from the camel, because they had the U.S. Camel Corps, right, Mm -hmm. from the before the war, over time, they kind of disappeared. In 1907, there was a prospector that reported he had seen two wild camels in Nevada and other reports came in sporadically. But by April 1934, according to the Oakland Tribune, they said the last American camel is dead. From that group, right? The camel was called Topsy, and it was last seen trekking across the deserts of Arizona into California, and she made her way into Los Angeles. So she was taken to Griffith Park to live. A few years later, she got sick and died, so they put her down. Oh. Yeah. I guess all the real army camels were gone, but... Or were they, Jen? The red ghost may may still be there with a dead rider on his back. That's creepy. So there's another legend of a ghostly camel. This one belonged to this prospector named Jake. He had purchased three camels. <laughs> Jake from State Farm. <laughs> what are you wearing, Jake from State Farm? A camel. <laughs> I... So well, apparently he had three camels. Okay. Three camels. He got them from the army at the uh, one of the auctions when they're like getting rid of all the camels. And he said that his camels were just as ornery as the soldiers had described them. But he spent so much time caring for them that he like loved them and they mm. were really good to him. He was out looking for gold with his camels. Like he was a minor prospector. He had gone into town to this local saloon to celebrate because he found some gold. And there was this guy in the crowd. His name was Paul Adams. And he heard Jake telling the story of finding gold. And when Jake left to return to his mind, he didn't go directly to the place where he found the gold because he knew like somebody might be following me. So he was careful and he took another route. But this guy, Paul Adams, followed him. And when Jake went back for the night, Adams was like, this is the mine. This is it. And he killed Jake. That's not nice. The camel trying to protect his owner attacked Adams, but he shot the camel too. But I guess the camel, like they say, viciously bit him. That guy, Paul Adams, spent like the whole night trying to find this mine or the where the gold was. Mm-hmm. And he said that the ghost of Jake riding upon his dead camel approached the camp and chased him away. And he went straight to the sheriff's office and he was so scared of what he did that he made a full confession. Wow. Jake and his loyal camel continue to roam the desert to this day. Bum, bum, bum. Organization to support. Yay! <laughs> that's a great. That's, I like that. That was kind of camel fun. Camel story. It's fun. So Organization to Support is the Wild Camel Protection Foundation at wildcamels.com. This is a UK registered chari- charity 
Dr. Jane Goodall is an honorary life patron. What? Apparently she freaking loves wild camels. That's great. I know. So you know it's got to be good. Yeah. It agreed. was established in 1997, been around for a while, and it's also registered in the United States as a nonprofit organization. The sole aim of the Wild Camel Protection Foundation is to protect the critically endangered wild camel and its habitat in the fragile and unique desert ecosystems uh, in the Gobi Desert and in northwest China and southwest Mongolia. It's the only charitable environmental foundation in the world which has this exclusive objective. So they're the only ones doing something with these wild camels. Mm. They say approximately 600 of these camels in the Gobi Desert in northwest China and approximately 450 in the desert in Mongolia. As a safeguard against extinction of the wild camel in China and Mongolia, the Wild Camel Protection Foundation established a captive wild camel breeding program in Mongolia in 2003, and it's the only one of its kind in the world. They also are the ones that put together that um, 155,000 square kilometer Lopnur wild camel nature reserve that I mentioned earlier, and it was established in 2001. And was given the national reserve status in 2003. The reserve is managed by this group, the Wild Camel Reserve Office. They're the only ones kind of keeping this going. So you can go there. You can become a member. You can donate. Check it out. They have a lot of cool information and beautiful pictures. So Of beautiful camels. Of beautiful camels. They are so beautiful. Especially my favorites because they're so floofy are the domesticated Bactrian camels. Because they're so... They're kind of like more rotund mm-hmm. and they have those lovely lady lumps and they're just super fluffy. They're, they're really cute. They have cute bangs. That was the one we were listening to. Oh, with the bangs. Mm-hmm, with the bangs. I just imagine that they sound like Ringo Starr for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so Megan. So Jen. If you needed something for your emergency preparedness kit, I mean, I don't know. Are we looking at I think a we're camel talking about, in ruts? I think we're talking about camel attacks. Camel attack. What's going to save you from a camel attack? Because usually we do these episodes and we talk about animals attacking, but usually they're attacking because they're super annoyed with some sort of human thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's pretty much our fault all the time. Well, I think, yeah, in this case, you're keeping them in captivity and then they're rutting, which is a totally normal thing for them to do. Uh-huh. And they got to get that aggression out somehow. Yeah. So. It just, it is what it is. It's a natural process. And they're huge. So, yeah, Jen, I'm thinking that what would be important is to distract and so you can escape. Okay. Right? We've we've used this tactic in a number of other situations, uh, pop up or inflatable things that pop out of a can like that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, In this case, I think you would need a large uh, female camel pop up inflatable that plays that song. A lovely lady lumps. I actually don't even know what the name of that song is from the Black Eyed Peas, but I just know she says "lovely lady lumps" so and, many times, and it's, it's a it's a favorite song of ours. Well, yeah, when we were in Peace Corps, it was pretty popular. It at was the time. It was uh, pivotal. Yes, honestly, in our friendship, it was it was way too many um, drinks. So many drinks. So many drinks, and then they would play that song, and it was it was. There was no stopping. Amazing. Us. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we need something that I'm going to name my humps TM, which is <laughs> uh, a pop up inflatable female camel to distract the male that's in rut. So it would come in a jar that would say my humps on it. Yes. Some kind of, you know, like a like a Pringles can mm-hmm. and you pop it open and it just like silly snakes out. 
But at the same time, <laughs> it plays that song because, you know, the male is kind of like in the mood a little bit. Yes. And that's, I mean, talking about humps and stuff. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hump, my hump, my hump, my hump in the my song. My lovely lady. I'm humps. looking at the lyrics right now. What you going to do with all that junk? All, all that, that junk, junk <laughs> inside your trunk. I'm going to get, 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 get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. You want me to keep going? I want you. Just the whole album with that with that level of enthusiasm. Oh. I would listen to that daily. <laughs> Check it out. Oh, man. Um, but no, Jen, that was a great story. I enjoyed learning more about camels. And now I know that they vomit on you. It's not really spit. Well, it's like a spit vomit. It's like bile. They're it's, just bile. It's, it's a bile bomb. Come on. Coming right at you. Gross. I'd be happy to meet a camel in the right situation. Sure. They just look, I mean, they look really not, amazing. Not in some shady, what did she call it? Not slutty. What is she? Sleazy. Sleazy. Slutty. <laughs> that would be so slutty. <laughs> some sideshow. <laughs> sleazy side road. Some slutty back alley. <laughs> no, but yeah. see, I mean, if you look at how the these nomadic people, whether in India or in Somalia, mm -hmm. they have a very good relationship, but they're free. They're just right. roaming free. They're still in their caravans or herds. Yeah. And that's what they want. They're very social and they need to be around each other. So I think when you just start messing around with their, you know, social structure. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of effing it up. You're mm -hmm. just effing it up for them and you. Good times. I felt mm. like this was like another episode of pissing off a giant animal. Yeah. Episode number. 62. I think that's kind of a theme. Yeah. That's maybe honestly, that should be the name of our podcast. Don't piss off wild animals because they will hurt you. Especially big ones. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> <Tia. laughs> All right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for that wonderful story. If you will remember, uh, listeners, dear listeners, uh, that we are taking a break in July, but we will be back in August with more fun stories of peril. And, uh, Wild, don't piss off giant animal stories. TM. Anyway, we'll see you then. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support us by following us on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts, or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com, where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on our website or to our email, you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. The camel's just like, I'm running. It's just like, can't help it, you know? Yeah. I'm so rut. <laughs> I just want to, I'm going to rut you up. Listen, I just want to rut all over your ruts. <laughs> oh, we're so juvenile. I love it. And I think that's where they are. They're just talking about regulations. How are we going to regulate this before, Is, it, before gets it gets crazy? Yeah. Before you have people murdering each other. That was kind of the point. Maybe they should like... have a game called You're Gonna Die Out There and oh. you have to go around and like try to survive. 
and you have things in your emergency preparedness kit. I mean, honestly, we should start that game now. TM. <laughs> TM. Already got it. Changed my mind. It's cool. All I'm right. All into it. There we go. Perfect. Metaverse. Yay. <laughs> I am. Um, I have a question. Yes. Before we get started. Do it. I was at the store today mm. and this is like happened before today. And I saw a lady, a grown adult woman wearing overalls. Yes. Can we do that again? We can. It is back in style. I'm just asking as a 40 something Gen Xer grunge girl of the past. It is. Is it okay to wear over overalls again? I just need to know. I'm here to tell you because I took etiquette. So I know these things, Jen. Fashion, totally fine. You can wear overalls now. It is a thing. Grown ass women can wear overalls. I'm kind of happy about this. Yeah. You can just be so comfortable in overalls. Get into it. I'm going to do it. Overalls and no shirt. Perfect. Well, I don't know about that. I'm going back to the mainland, mm-hmm. the state side. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be so interested in seeing what the fashion is now. Yeah. And if it's overalls, I'm coming back to Guam with some freaking overalls, Megan. Oh, it's no. happening. Oh, no. Next time we record, after I get back, I'm wearing overalls. That's amazing. Are you trying to say that Guam is not fashion forward? I'm mm-hmm. I feel like there was a little bit of that in there. <laughs> well, we're so close to Japan though. Listen, I mean. I'm just saying. Yeah. We're yeah. a little it's just an island style. Yeah. It's different. Cuz you can't wear there are certain things you can't wear here. They just it's not wearable. I don't see islanders wearing overalls. The girl I saw or lady I saw looked like she was from the states, but just saying. Cool cool cool. And that's also why they have those pretty long lashes that all the girls now are trying to achieve. Oh. I feel like I want to talk to some of these girls with these ginormous Butterfly eyelash. lashes. Yeah, yeah. And just be like, are you trying to keep the sound out of your eyes? <laughs> well, Did tri- you evolve where there's sandstorms? <laughs> it trips me out when you see someone wearing like not a lot of makeup but or no makeup just the eyelashes oh man. and i'm always like, like that, but i know those are fake like those cannot be real wildly yeah. long thick eyelashes that yes. just are abnormal the only time you see wildly thick beautiful eyelashes uh-huh. and it's real uh-huh. is on dudes it's a dude thing i'm telling you uh, i mean yeah my child when he was born i mean he's still to this day long thick eyelashes yeah he also has wildly big eyebrows they are so huge it's they're great. like groucho Marx level it's so good eugene levy <laughs> <laughs> well hey you yeah. know 